Welcome to House Highlights, a weekly Facebook live cast and podcast focused on Maryland politics. I'm Eric Lutke, Majority Leader of the Maryland House of Delegates, and each week I get to interview one of my amazing colleagues to help you learn more about them and the work they're doing. You can tune in live each Tuesday at 6 p.m. on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Eric for Maryland, and you can watch recorded interviews on that same page or listen to them in podcast format on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we have with us Delegate Stephanie Smith. Uh, Delegate Smith made absolutely the right choice in coming to Maryland from Virginia, where, where she grew up. Um, after brief stops at, at Hampton University, the University of Delaware, and the Howard University School of Law. So let's just be clear, she is much better educated than I am. Um, after a stint at the environmental law organization Earth Justice, she went to work for the city of Baltimore doing, among other things, community engagement work. And in 2018, ran for N1, a seat in the Maryland House of Delegates representing the 45th district. She has served ever since on the Ways and Means Committee, more about that committee later. Um, and earlier this year was elected chair of the Baltimore City Delegation. And just to be clear, I think Stephanie's an absolute rock star. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much. And I didn't have to pay you for such a glorious introduction. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Um, so I, let's, we always start off with like a, a bit of a softball. Tell us about yourself. Where'd you grow up? What do you do outside of legislative work? How, how'd you decide to, to run for office? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm from a neighborhood called SeaTac. SeaTac is the largest historically um, black neighborhood in, in um, Virginia Beach. I grew up in the house my mother was born in, my grandfather built. Um, I grew up with my aunt across the street, um, you know, other relatives, extended family around the corner. So I grew up in a very close-knit um, community. Um, I um, was very um, fortunate to have um, brothers. I have a brother seven years older and a brother seven years younger. And my older brother definitely was a big part of fostering my um, political awareness because mm -hmm. who else did he have to talk to um, <laughs> but his little sister <laughs> about those things. And so um, my mother and father, um, they were active in the community and, you know, they did divorce, but my mother continued to support me um, through student government, you know, um, serving in my basically K through 12. I was always involved in the community, involved in student government. And, um, you know, I saw Eyes on the Prize when I was seven years old about the civil rights movement. Mm, that's in a great movie. The lawyers are the superheroes. Yeah. So my introduction to lawyers was a very positive introduction. When you see the, the work of a Thurgood Marshall and, and a work of, you know, Oliver Hill and all of these great um, civil rights um, litigators, I was like, well, I want to be a lawyer because they help people. And mm -hmm. when I say that, people would laugh because so many people have these um, negative stereotypes about lawyers. But I always knew I wanted to go to law school. But what type of lawyer I wanted to be kept changing. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I did AmeriCorps. I ended up going to grad school in, at the University of Delaware. And that opened my eyes to um, urban planning. And that what, that's what kind of got me on a different trajectory when I went to law school, thinking about land use and zoning. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. So then how'd you make the jump from, you know, doing that kind of work to, to running for office? Well, you know, as I said, I always um, was interested in politics. My mm -hmm. undergraduate at Hampton University was political science. So okay. I knew that it was um, something I was always interested in, in being a part of, but I was really content to be in the background. I remember within a month of moving to Delaware for AmeriCorps, I was working on the reelection campaign for Ruth Ann Minner for governor. Mm -hmm. At that point in AmeriCorps, you got paid about $9,000 um, a year and I would work for pizza 
um, just about anywhere on just about anything. So um, Ruth Ann Minner was a wonderful woman. She gave me my first shot <laughs> working on a campaign. Um, I also, when I was in law school, um, Adrian Fenty was um, running mm -hmm. for the first time. And um, I was still not doing that great in the financial department going from grad school to the law school. I bet. Happy to do some foot soldier work on that campaign. And then while I was in law school, um, I had the good fortune to um, help um, a, a senator named Barack Obama um, run for president. I did election protection work um, in South Carolina during the primaries um, in 2008. And I, I remember when I heard him speak in 2004 at the DNC, I told my mom, I was like, I think he could be um, president one day and I'm gonna do anything I can to make that possible. And she looked at me kind of like, there, there child, that, that's, that's sweet, but okay. Um, so I think I was always just interested in being in support of people who were, um, you know, trying to achieve that goal of being an elected mm -hmm. official. And then when I graduated from law school, I was a Congressional Black Caucus um, fellow working for then Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota. So um, I was a staffer and my portfolio was covering issues related to um, housing affordability. We're in the midst of the foreclosure crisis at, mm -hmm. at the time. And also issues related to women's rights, labor, and um, the environment. So I went from the Hill to working off the hill as a lobbyist for earth justice, I'm working on Clean Air Act regulations. So again, spending most of my time in the Senate, no shade to the House, but at that point, Nancy Pelosi was no longer the um, speaker and we needed to focus on the far wall we had. Right, right. <laughs> so um, I've always kind of been around politics most of my adult professional life. It just wasn't until um, someone asked me to consider running. Um, and that um, that person who asked me to consider running is now the mayor-elect of Baltimore City, um, Brandon Scott. Really? Uh, I didn't know that. That's great. That's great. And you, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't in the city that much, you know, around the time of your race, but from what I've heard, it was very much uh, a, a grassroots shoe leather, knock on a ton of doors campaign, right? Absolutely. I mean, one of the beauty, beautiful things about Baltimore is that we have density. So like I could knock 300 doors out in a day by myself. So when you have a loving husband, um, Calvin Smith, shout out, you have, you know, friends, family, you know, just people who are inspired by you from social media, willing mm -hmm. to spend their um, spare time um, knocking doors. We knocked over well over 10,000 doors. And um, I had an additional challenge around the door knocking because I was um, visibly pregnant during much of that door knocking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Explaining to do, um, maybe I shouldn't have, but this is the world we live in. So right. I definitely volunteer that I live in a multi-generational household. Not only do I live with my husband and lovely sons, I also live with my mother. So um, it takes a village to make um, the Smith family go. And I would have never considered running for office without the full support of my whole family. But um, knocking on doors while visibly pregnant, people are kind of like, what is happening? So I <laughs> um, say thank you to people who, who still listen to me after they saw me knock on their door. You know what? I, we need more of that, right? Like we, we've had we've had too many centuries, frankly, of everybody who's running for office, you know, look like me. Right. And <laughs> and so, you know, having more women run, having more people of color, having people who are right. pregnant or people with disabilities, whatever it is, right. like it's a good thing. I agree. And I'm glad the people of the 45th district agreed with you, too. Most yeah. <laughs> me, too. Me, too. They did a good job picking you. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate them. Um, so tell me about your district a little bit. It's, it's kind of like East and Northeast Baltimore, um, yes. and you know, it, for for a lot of us who are like in the DC metro area, um, 
I don't understand the six billion neighborhoods you have in Baltimore. So it'd be helpful. That's 280. Yeah, that no, only 280. <laughs> just, but you know what? There are some landmarks that could be familiar um, to some of your, you know, listeners um, closer to DC Metro, Penn Station's in my district. So mm-hmm. many people, you know, are familiar with that going on, you know, up and down the Northeast Corridor. Um, mm-hmm. have stop through there. Also Hopkins, Johns Hopkins Medical Center. Um, is to my my southern boundary and Bird School of Public Health. And then, um, you know, so our western boundary is essentially um, kind of Penn Station slash 83, kind of give give people like a sense of that being my western boundary. And then we terminate at the county line to the north. So we have um, some shared communities with Baltimore County, like um, Parkville and Overly. So, um, you know, we have a lot of variety. The top of my district, in many respects, is very suburban. Mm-hmm. And, and we also have Herring Run Park that runs right through the middle of my district. And you might feel like you've been transported to Western Maryland or something. You right. see the water and you know the rocks and all of that. And then we have very densely populated areas um, in the you know in East Baltimore, the heart of East Baltimore. You know, mm-hmm. is where we represent. So there's literally a little something for everybody in our district. You can have an old home with a wraparound porch, or you can have a row home, or you know we're even are going to have some tiny homes being installed pretty soon um, in my district too. So there's a little bit of something for everybody. And the, well, you know, as well, I, I, uh, I, you know, for all that I, in Baltimore, I think I, like a lot of cities get stereotyped. Right. Oh. And, and, and particularly in the media, I mean, that, you know, there's, there's this sort of vision that a lot of the country has of what Baltimore is. And it's, it's either from John Waters movies or it's from the wire and there's no in between. Right. Right. But, but the city's a lot more than that. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's incredibly diverse. So like yeah. the point, right. Um, you know, a city of this size, this is a great American city. We mm-hmm. have not only um, a diversity of, of housing stock, we also have a lot of parks. I mean, we have some major parks that are um, a part of the, um, you know, the flyway, um, that Audubon track. So like mm-hmm. Carson Park, which is just outside of my district to the south of me, I'm, it's literally like less than five minutes from me. I mean, I can go and see birds that have traveled from South America on their way to Canada and vice versa. And people would be like, those birds are taking a rest in Baltimore? I'm like, yes, they are. And they do this regularly. And, um, you know, we, we have a great park system here. Mm-hmm. We also have a lot of um, historic homes. I am right in my district is a great um, park, um, Clifton Park. And we just um, redid the um, tennis courts there. The U.S. Tennis Association came out to celebrate. And it's right beside the Clifton Mansion, which was formerly the summer home of Johns Hopkins. And this is right in the heart of my district, a beautiful historic home. It's a great place to get married, to have an event, you know, when COVID subsides. And it's also adjacent to a wonderful public um, tennis court and public golf, golfing um, golf course. So, you know, those are two sports that are especially COVID friendly, um, mm-hmm. you know, time that we find ourselves in and tons of just open space in between. So I think that um, for people that think um, city life always has to be hustle and bustle, Baltimore can give you that density and that hustle and bustle in certain areas. And it can give you the peacefulness, you know, that you might think you could only find in a, in a suburb, but yet the city is just a couple of minutes away. Right. Downtown's only a couple of minutes away. Best, best of both worlds, right? For, for those of you that actually follow me on Facebook, you know that Stephanie was just speaking to my heart because I'm such a parks nerd. Yes. Um, the one thing that we have to do that should be at some point, like you and I have to work together on this, 
Baltimore City, I think, is the only jurisdiction in the state of Maryland that does not have a state park designated, right. designated within it. That's something we, we got to fix. City parks, right, but right. we do not necessarily have a state park. And, and that's right. something we need to work on. I wish we could have a national park. There's only a few urban national parks. That would be so great, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get like the historic. Well, here's, I mean, with that, I, one of the things I've always thought of, you've got so much great history in, in the city and you've got, right. you know, these these childhood homes of these really important figures in, you know, American history, Absolutely. in black history and in, in musical history, right? Those should be national historic sites, right? Well, yeah. And you know what, something that's a, probably a little known um, feature around historic preservation, and I wouldn't know this unless I was at my, if I wasn't at my day job with the Department of Planning, is that local historical designations actually have more um, legal force for protection than the national ones. I know that sounds crazy, but that's because zoning is largely the province of localities and municipalities. So mm -hmm. we have historic districts all throughout Baltimore City and within my district. And so when you um, combine a national um, registered landmark with the fact that the house is in a historic um, um, district or can be designated to be a monument. Those are all things that um, strengthen the protection. For example, we have a recreation center in my district called the Chick Webb Recreation Center. And Chick Webb did not live a very long life. He was a jazz um, percussionist, mm -hmm. but he had always hoped to build um, a recreation center in East Baltimore. And unfortunately, he had um, battled um, an illness much of his life and, and his family actually encouraged him to take up percussion to build up his um, lung strength and to do something that uh, yeah. with his um, the condition he was um, facing. But um, when he passed away, that dream didn't die with him. Local community members um, organized to raise funds to build this center. Um, um, Ella Fitzgerald and Joe Lewis, these people came to, to host fundraisers on behalf of their late friend, right? And um, one of the first things um, when I you know, joined um, my day job um, at the Department of Planning was the Planning Commission approved a historical designation for the outside of the Chick Webb Recreation Center to be a monument so that no matter what happens on the inside we need to preserve the facade that mm -hmm. estimate to that community action to create a recreational amenity when at that time um a ymca and other types of recreational amenities were not um, going to locate in east baltimore right it also shows um having good friends um last beyond your life right right yeah that's fantastic that's a great story yeah um Okay, well, so you you are an HBCU grad, and and first of all, you mentioned Ruth Ann Minner a little while ago. Did yeah, you did you catch um, President Elect Biden's acceptance speech or the other yes, night? Of course, yes. I and, he, <laughs> and he called out <laughs> Ruth Ann Minner right at the beginning. I, I saw I, that. I chuckled. I was like, "Oh, Ruth," <laughs> which I thought was so great. Yeah. No. I don't know if you noticed, but David Fluff always has a a Delaware um, University of Delaware um, pennant behind him every time he's on MSNBC because he attended the University of Delaware, which is where I got my master's. So I share an alma mater with um, both um, President-elect Biden and um, Vice President-elect um, Kamala Harris. Yeah, I bet. Well, and so you went to Howard Law, right? right. Um, and and I'm sure that your you know fellow alums are really excited to have Senator Harris now be Vice President-elect. Absolutely. And you know, what's funny is for people who do know me, they know I went to Hampton University University for undergrad and I went to Howard for law school. They're arch rivals, you know, um, it's like, who's the real HU and all these things reside within me. But I have to say on behalf of my fellow um, Hampton alums, we are just as excited as Howard alums for Kamala. We have mm -hmm. 
any rivalries to the side because she is um, shining a light on the excellence that um, you know comes out of you know at HBCU, not just Howard, but the whole system has mm -hmm. so many um, notable um, you know contributors to the American story. From a Thurgood Marshall from Baltimore City that ended up also receiving his law degree from Howard University School of Law, to um, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who of course is a son of Morehouse, a Morehouse man. So. Mm -hmm. So many people that have achieved great heights all throughout the American story that owe an HBCU for the opportunity. And when you consider that they're only 3% of, of, of colleges, you know, are HBCUs, but they mm -hmm. graduate over 17% of African-American students, that's huge. Yeah. And 50% of um, Black um, positions uh, and lawyers attended one. So, I mean, they're really um, a key to um, the, the Black middle class, to social mobility. And um, I think, you know, for too long, they've been um, the best kept secret. But Maryland mm -hmm. is lucky to not have one, to not have two, but to have four um, historically Black colleges and universities of their own. So, you know, though I did not have the, um, the, good, the good fortune or the opportunity to attend a Maryland HBCU, I still feel connected to them because of the HBCU family I'm a part of. But my mm -hmm did receive his MBA from Morgan State University in Baltimore City. That's great. So so this past session, we passed legislation that the speaker kind of led to try to, you know, make sure that some of the historic underfunding of HBCUs in Maryland was was corrected, right? What, what do you think the next steps are for, for uh, supporting Maryland HBCUs and, and helping to, you know, give them more of a national profile and, and support their growth? Well, I want to first just give like kudos to Speaker Adrian Jones. This is what it means when it goes merely beyond um, representation. Yes, it's wonderful that she's the first, um, you know, woman speaker in the history of Maryland. And it's wonderful that she's the first black person to serve as speaker. But most importantly, she's not just symbolic. She's mm -hmm. doing something that really matters to people who maybe didn't always have the same ally in this position because maybe they didn't understand um, some of the perspectives they were coming from or didn't understand the importance of some of the institutions that even though she didn't attend one, she still knew their value because of the um, um, affiliation she holds because of the church she goes to. Mm -hmm. um, institutions still figure prominently, even if you don't attend them in many communities um, across Maryland. So when she fought to rectify um, a multi-generational kind of disinvestment from the state in our historically black colleges and universities, that was a courageous stand she took. And I was really, you know, just honored to be able to support her in that effort because what people don't realize is that when you invest in historically black colleges and universities, you're not simply investing in the students, you're also investing in the communities that surround these um, anchor. Mm -hmm. I think we forget these are anchor institutions and communities. When they're thriving, when they're maximizing their capital investments, that benefits their neighbors. It mm -hmm. can increase um, you know, investments in, in, in neighboring um, communities. It can add additional amenities that don't just benefit the students, that benefit a whole neighborhood. So I think that for too long, we've not only undervalued the high quality education that can be gained at HBCUs, we've underestimated their potential to be a community development vehicle for the communities and cities in which they are situated. And I think um, you know, it, it's a testament to her vision and commitment that she didn't waste time to try to rectify um, th these disinvestments because what's unique about Maryland is that all our HBCUs are state public institutions. Mm -hmm. Where both of the HBCUs I graduated from were private, Maryland has a particular obligation to make sure that their investments are fair and adequate because they belong to them. Right. 
Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. All right. So you are chair of the Baltimore City delegation, which means I, I, I don't know if you've told Brandon Scott this yet, but it means you speak for Baltimore City. So what <laughs> so what, tell us about what are what are going to be some of the Baltimore City priorities that, that the delegation is going to focus on in, in the 2021 session coming up? Well, I will not tell him what you said, but um, we will be speaking together. It'll be a chorus, okay? A chorus of Excellent. <laughs> speaking to the needs of Baltimore City. But um, from my vantage point and in consultation with our delegation, I think we're going to be focused on a lot of things that are going to be similar to not only Montgomery County or Prince George's County, because we're all facing it's not even an aftermath, it's the ongoing saga of what coronavirus means um, for our localities, what it means for the provision of public education, for which we have, you know, at the state level, a responsibility to make sure it's adequate and meets muster under the constitution of the state of Maryland, but on the ground in a city like Baltimore that has a, a very um, uneven access to Wi-Fi for our students, um, mm -hmm. it's really um, a fundamental, just basic education access issue. So I know that some members of our delegation are really thinking intentionally about how we not only address um, access issues in Baltimore, but also in, in um, consideration with the fact that we have, you know, um, colleagues on the on the shore, Western Maryland, and other pockets of, um, you know, areas even close to you where there's still some access issues. So we really do need to think in a more comprehensive way, but definitely drill down on communities of high need like Baltimore City, where like upwards of forty percent of, of 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 Black students do not have access mm -hmm. Wi-Fi, and we know that we cannot um, have an adequate remote educational experience on a tablet or on someone's cell phone, for example, you know, we need, we need other, um, you know, ways to ensure that people are getting their education met. So that's going to be a huge deal. Another thing is going to be just shoring up, um, you know, our small businesses. I, I'm sure just like many of the people in Montgomery County, small businesses have been devastated by this um, moment. And it's not that the state doesn't want to do um, everything it can. Um, we haven't always had the best um, partners in the federal government and things are looking up. And, um, you know, I gave a shout out this morning on a radio show to the passage of question one. I know that it hasn't gotten as much press as question two on the ballot, but I, I always tell people a budget, it's a demonstration of values and a demonstration of vision. Mm -hmm. Up to this point, um, my colleagues in the MGA, we haven't had the same voice to shape the vision and values of the governor's budget, and now we will, and there couldn't be a more important time for us to ensure that the funds that we hope to get from the federal government can go to the to the concerns and to the um, populations that have been um, the most just shell-shocked by coronavirus. So for um, you know, Baltimore City, we want to shore up um, you know, our vulnerable um, businesses. Um, we want to make sure that we work with our partners across the state to get um, our unemployment benefit infrastructure under control. Mm -hmm. And um, the entire Department of Human Services, to be frank, people have, have spoken a lot about the needs to process unemployment claims um, quickly and, and, and um, with um, respect to people's um, mounting obligations. But the same person that needs um, their unemployment check, they also need their um, food benefits processed very quickly. They also need their fuel assistance um, benefits processed very quickly. And I don't know about you, but the kind of um, you know emails I'm getting have really ratcheted up in the tenor of desperation. People are in dark places right now. And I, I think that um, for me, I, I'm not just speaking for the 45th district. This is a citywide concern to make sure that we are expediting um, these state processes because um, 
people are really fraying at this moment. Um, another big issue is going to be, um, you know, just the ongoing crime, um, particularly the homicide rates we've been facing here. Um, th this pandemic has not stemmed the tide of, um, you know, of, of these challenges. I, I know that um, Mayor-elect Brandon Scott has voiced that, um, you know, when you look at, at crime, particularly homicides, um, we need to utilize a public health analysis because you have to work backwards to really prevent these things from going forward. So there's a lot of things that we're going to be looking at. I know that some of my colleagues will be looking at, at, at local bills as it pertains to liquor to see how we can ensure that communities are um, not inundated with bad actors. Um, we, we've been, you know, working, I think, in a kind of... Um, Welcome fashion to address this, but I think that it begets um, a larger conversation about how we can across the city really um, create a, a system that's not anti, you know, liquor store, but is pro community and making sure that these um, businesses are good, um, good neighbors to to folks and are not um, fostering or condoning activity that really makes some blocks particularly challenging um, to live on. I know that um, you know in, as as it, as it pertains to. Um, prevention of violent crime, there were a lot of um, bills that weren't just local bills, that, but there were bills that were led by uh, members of the House delegation and the Baltimore City um, Senate delegation that were vetoed. And mm -hmm. I'm aware of that. Um, these were not even bills that carried very big price tags. They just were simply not Governor Hogan's idea. So um, when, when we have leaders who are um, pretty much, you know, stalling ideas that are going to address not only the root causes of crime, but also help our law enforcement to use their resources in a more in the most efficient and smart way possible. You can't tell me you're serious about addressing issues of violent crime when we're when we're not using everything in our capacity from the state level to address these issues. So um, I know that you know that the speaker has taken considerable leadership around issues um, related to police accountability and reform, and we can't thank her. And um, Judiciary Vice Chair um, Vanessa Atterbury, who served as the chair of that work group, for their leadership, because mm -hmm. in the in the wake of a pandemic that has you know just totally disrupted life as we know it, we still had legacy issues related to police accountability reform that were not going to wait simply because we had this huge um, global. Um, challenge um, to navigate. So I want to say um, publicly thank you to them for not only giving the space for difficult and important conversations to be had, but to um, for it all to result in some really compelling recommendations that I know um, the residents of Baltimore City will be particularly um, paying attention to because we are a city that is currently under a federal consent decree for unconstitutional policing on the part of our police department. So we are invested in turning the corner and not only having a constitutionally operating police force, but ultimately living in a city that is safer where um, police um, are, are essentially not, um, to me, they're not central to preventing crime. They solve crimes. Preventing crime goes to all the things that I'll be focused on with my colleagues on um, this session is around ensuring that we have a fair tax system, ensuring that people have access to the training they need to be adequately employed and that we're breaking down um, barriers for people that are returning citizens to ensure that they have a true opportunity at a second chance.
That's great. It's, it's going to be a busy session. I think it's, it's a long agenda and I, you know, but I'm excited for, it. I think it's going to be great, but we're, we're, we're almost out of time. We got like three minutes left. So we're going to do lightning true or false. Okay. Um, so true or false question, uh, true or false. The Washington football team is clearly superior to the Ravens. False. <laughs> I can't. I look. I'm a you Washington fan. Just say that with a straight face yourself, okay? I can't. I can't even make that argument. I. I really can't. I. I love. I love the Washington football team, but. Um, but oh, it's rough being a Washington fan. So. Well, I, I mean, this might be shady, but I think the only people that have more misplaced faith in a Washington um, football fan is someone looking um, for a recount of this election. <laughs> oh, that's that's true and terrible at the same time. <laughs> All right. Okay. Next. True or false? The Ways and Means Committee is clearly the best committee in the House of Delegates. True. Emphatic. True. See, that's, I agree completely. I think that's 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 something that's clear to all of us in the House. Everyone um, knows this. Okay. So you're an environmentalist. Uh, true or false? If you can't reduce and you can't reuse, you should definitely recycle. Absolutely. Now, I know that's going to be a bit of a sore spot in Baltimore City because we are having some challenges around that with our mm -hmm. public works. But I just want to encourage folks that there are still opportunities to take in your recycling to our recycling centers as we still navigate those challenges. But then also one of the best things we can do is maybe sometimes just prevent waste in the first place. So mm -hmm. just think about, do you need to have all those Amazon packages dribbling in? Could they come one day that week? Do they have to come every day? Those are things that we can do as well. Right, right. I mean, less less to feed the incinerator, the better, right? How yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, you could put that clown in there. As much as I hate incineration, that that was a very frightening clown that you posted on Twitter. Yeah, I, uh, I one of actually the 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 closest person uh, who ran against me in 2010 is now a, a you know a friend of mine. Um, and oh. she's very into decorating for Halloween. And so she took the clown. She wanted it was the clown. Very scary. I do not I, like clowns. No, I, I gladly gave it to, it was horrifying. Okay. Um, last question. It's a tripartite question. It's a three-part mm -hmm. question. So mm -hmm. what is your favorite place in Maryland? What is your favorite food in Maryland? It doesn't have to be a specifically Maryland food, but your favorite food in Maryland. And what's your favorite Maryland related pop culture thing, movie, music, book, whatever. Okay, now this is going to be cheesy, but I really do feel this way. The best place in Maryland is at home with my family. Mm. I mean, as much as quarantine is driving me crazy, I'm getting to see my boys way more than I usually um, get to. And it really makes me appreciate kind of like, how can I make my home even more inviting and comfortable? Because I didn't put a lot of emphasis on that. So right now that's my favorite part of Maryland. My favorite um, food, I think my husband will not be surprised to hear what I'm about to say, but I love Coco's Crab Cakes and not just because it's in the 45th district, but because it's amazing. And the first time I even heard about Coco's was when I was um, living in DC um, during law school and we had an auction at the campus and someone mentioned um, that, you know, you should try these crab cakes um, in, in Baltimore. And my then boyfriend lived in Baltimore. So I'm like, we got to go check it out. And we've never looked back. K-O-C-O -O, crab cakes. And they also ship for my friends in, in um, Montgomery County and Prince George. Hey. That's great. Uh, and uh, favorite pop culture, Maryland related pop culture. Hmm. 
See, there's there's so much good, um, you know, kind of just like surprises. So, I mean, I was someone that definitely watched The Wire and it's not like just cool that like you can watch the show, it's that you can run into the people that were on the show. So mm. that makes it, you know, pretty, pretty interesting. You can see them at the mall or, you know, stuff like that. Um, I also used to be um, a devoted um, um, customer of Joann's and Joann's was on, um, a Korean deli breakfast place that basically closed like at three every day. So mm -hmm. if I was eating breakfast at Joann's, it meant that I missed the Mark train to go to DC for my old job. So I was like, oh, I'm just gonna go over there. And it was featured prominently in House of Cards. So they would have their picture from the scenes in House of Cards, um, you know, hanging up there. And I just liked, um, you know, spending time with, um, you know, the folks that own the place. So unfortunately, Joann's has been a casualty of the COVID fight. Mm. But, you know, challenge. So that's just an example of a small business that loved where it was, loved what it was doing, and just couldn't weather the storm. Well, I, once we get through this whole pandemic thing, I got to come up to the city. We got to go to Coco's and get some crab Absolutely, cake. Absolutely, you'll love it. Yeah, and then we're going to plot about how to make a state park in Baltimore. That's that's the plan. <laughs> I love parks. My son is named Parker, keeper of the park. So all about it. Excellent. Well, uh, Delegate Stephanie Smith, thank you so much for joining me tonight. To all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week. Um, and please follow Delegate Stephanie Smith on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and wherever else she is, because she is, as I said earlier, a rock star. Have a good At night, Stephanie. Smith for Delegate. Bye-bye at all. <laughs> Have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye.